You know, we issue licenses for all kinds of things, like driver's licenses, motorcycle licenses, boat licenses, boating licenses. But we don't have a license for publishing things and disseminating information. And the more and more bullshit I read on the internet, the more and more I think that this is a real problem. What do you think about journalism these days? I think anybody that has an opinion can call themselves a journalist. Like, like that's not to say people aren't credible and people aren't allowed to their opinion, but right. everybody's opinion seems equally valid to the people they're trying to reach, if that makes sense. That's true. And so, like, I'm going to go through two internet bullshit lists today, so I'm going to put you through torture because <laughs> it's double. <laughs> but they're both based on the same kind of topic, and the results here are so incredibly different, and I think you're going to get a kick out of this. Okay, so first of all, what are we talking about? This week, we're going to feature a match that was held in the Tokyo Dome, so I thought, hey, this is a great time to look at the best foreign wrestlers in Japan, right? And now, I don't think we've ever talked about this, Jim. Foreign people in Japan, they're generally referred to as gaijin. And so gaijin, technically defined, is outside person. And so, <laughs> and so <laughs> I am a gaijin. All everybody else who's non-Japanese is considered gaijin. For a long time, that was like normal. Like It wasn't considered racist or discriminatory. And I remember the first week I came to Japan, we had this conference. So there's this big conference, and they split the members up into smaller groups. And there was <laughs> there's a group of about 12 people, okay? And they said, all right, so we should split up into groups within these, these like subgroups. We're going to split up into smaller groups and then have a discussion. And so they said, let's do it by those who are most similar to each other. And so they split up the group into Japanese and non-Japanese. And I looked to my right and there's a guy he must have been from like Senegal or Zambia. And I look to my left and there's a guy from Australia. And behind me, there's a girl from the UK and I'm Canadian with a Pakistani background. I'm like, what the fuck do we have in common? Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> from their point of view, yeah, you're gaijin. You're all the same. And so they, right, you're all you're all just one giant category. Right, right. And so that's kind of the way they see foreign people in Japan. Historically, that's been the way. And now it's getting a little bit more nuanced because that first generation of foreigners is having kids with Japanese people. So they're considered the special zone, which is called half. And then now those halves are starting to have kids. So it's getting mixed up. So eventually that whole thing's going to disappear. But we still think about foreigners as outsiders in some sense here. And so I went and I searched for the best gaijin wrestlers in Japan. And as you mentioned, just exactly as you mentioned, there's people who write with an agenda or they write with their own kind of logic. Okay, so I'm going to break down the first guy's logic before I give you his list. And this list made me so angry, I couldn't even find it funny. Okay. And so this list is the greatest gaijin to ever wrestle in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And the caveat here is this person based their list on accolades. Okay? Just keep that in mind. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Number 10. Trent Beretta. Trent Beretta's not 10 on any list. <laughs> like, like if you've if you made a list of like People Rocky Romero tagged with in his whole history of his career, he might make the top 10. Right. Okay, so Trent Moretta, number 10. At first, okay. I was like, 
Wait, who the fuck is this guy again? And I looked, oh yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number nine. <laughs> Remember, this is by accolade. Number nine, Scott Norton. Well, did Scott Norton ever win the IWGP? Well, he did, but more importantly. Well, I mean, that's that's, yeah. that's why he's sure, on there. Sure, sure. Okay. So he won that, but there's a difference between being on top when the territory is down and being on top when the territory is hot, right? That's yeah. fair. That's and also, fair. like, for example, if you win a junior tag league or if you win, I don't know, a U.S. title, that's not the same as being the main guy, right? And so there's a lot of right. uh, a lot of smaller tag title runs and stuff here. Okay, then out of nowhere, number eight, Big Van Vader. Eight? Eight. How the fuck can he be eight? <laughs> So when you get, when we get further down the list, you'll be like, what? He's the only one that makes sense on this list. <laughs> he's the only one that makes sense. And he should be, he should be close. He should, number if one we're just doing New Japan, yeah, yeah, he's one, yeah, right? He's close, yeah. he's close, he's close. Agreed. Okay. Number seven, Carl Anderson. Next. <sighs> like, like, I don't know. The fascination with Carl Anderson. Like I know Me he too. was just he was just he was just what the never open blah yeah. blah blah yeah. champion. Right. But like I he's never to me he's never a singles guy. That would be like going road warrior hawk. So like I had a difficult time in the early stages of his career distinguishing him from the Anderson that was in ECW. What was that guy's name? C.W. Anderson. C.W. Anderson, right. I couldn't separate these two <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> so to me, I know they're totally different. They don't even look the same. But like his accolades remind me of C.W. Anderson. It's like, okay, yeah, he's good. He can do everything well. Doesn't really stand out in my memory anywhere. Like doesn't, doesn't. No, he's big yeah. monster talk, bald dude. Yeah. Right. right, right. Okay. Next. Number six, Ricochet. Remember, this is ahead of Vader. Rick Ricochet. <laughs> and it's uh, yeah. Yeah, whatever. The logic is because he won a whole bunch of junior stuff, junior tag stuff. He had the junior tag title like three times. Like but that's you have the reason. Two, but you have two world champions below him. Right. Like I'm no Scott Norton fan, but Scott Norton <laughs> should be ahead of him. Agreed. Number five, Tama Tonga. That guy. Man, like, like I'm gonna keep this red short, but like, I like this is all booking. Like, this is to me, he's average talent, but just always has either been on the booking team or with the booking team. He's in the right place in the card to get like recognition. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. But in terms of skill or greatest ever, he should be nowhere near this list. He shouldn't even be writing this list. <laughs> number four rocky romero <laughs> i can't say it without laughing look 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 that that eye patch is awesome yeah but be but beyond that like i don't i don't that's a longevity thing yeah, that's sure. not a and that that's not whatever okay now we get down to the final three i'm gonna give you a chance to break the list here any thoughts on who the greatest New Japan pro wrestlers ever by accolade are? Well, 
based on this list. Yeah. And only based on this list, mm-hmm. it's it's got to be Styles Omega and Osprey, right? Oh, very, very close. Okay, coming in at number three, the man we're featuring in today's match, it's Kenny Omega. Okay, now remember, remember this list. He's okay? pro- yeah, he would probably beat Vader on my list. That's why you said one and two. Yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, at this point, Omega's past the threshold where you can consider him one of the legendary, uh, one of the legendary characters in the history of New Japan, right? Like if you look at the whole yeah. history of the company, yeah, he fits there. No, no doubt, no questions, no problem. Number two, the Young Bucks. <laughs> oh yeah, the young the Young Bucks had a good run there, but like, but they're a tag team, right? And, and is, not only that, yeah. they're not their storylines aren't integral to the history of New Japan. Like I never go, oh, remember that awesome thing they did in New Japan? Agreed. I think they're great. I think they're outstanding, but they have no business being on the 10 greatest Gaijin New Japan pro wrestlers list ever. Never. They're 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 like their legacy is like even their triple A stuff is more of a legacy than their New Japan stuff. Yeah, I don't know who's hot this. And number one Coming in on the top of the list, your favorite, Prince Devitt. God damn it. I was, <laughs> and I was gonna say him instead of Styles, but right. I actually like have taste. So I didn't, <laughs> so I didn't want to say him because like, look, they're giving him credit because he starts, he starts Bullet Club, right? Like Correct. that's, Correct. but that's. Not a reason to put him at the top. Like Bullet Club was so much better under other leadership. Like he mm. he doesn't get grandfathered into the one spot because he was the leader of Bullet Club. That's dumb. And, yeah, and he's got a lot of like insignificant title reigns, right? Like he's got minor titles, not major titles. And so the article was written <sighs> on the supposition that if you have a title run, that counts as one point. And so Prince David has a total of 10 title runs in New Japan Pro Wrestling. That's why he fits in at number one. Mind you, they counted the new bucks, uh, the young bucks as brothers. So they got a double push. So that doesn't make much sense. But yeah, but that, that makes no sense. Like, yeah. like by that standard, like indeed, if you made a DDT list, oh God, everybody right. that, everybody that, that held that, that belt, mm-hmm. what is it? The Iron Man belt? Like right, they, right, right, like right. they would. Like they would be the top guys over anybody that's ever been in DDT, including Omega. Yeah, and you know, and what? Ibushi. If we're talking about it along those lines, like think about this, right? I think I don't know Triple H. I have no idea. He's probably got like 27, 28, 30 title runs, whatever. Are they more important than Hulk Hogan's five WWF runs? No fucking way. No, no way. No. And so, like, you can't just say he's got a run, and so that gives him one point. That makes him better, right? Like. What are we counting here? There's no significance. There's no logic. There's no nobody who knows wrestling would say this is a good fucking list. So, it's- so, so, if you were gonna make it, this is my favorite wrestling stat of all time. Mm-hmm. If you if you went on points and right. only and only counted world titles, do you know who the greatest the world the world title of that league? Do you know who the greatest wrestler of all time is for New Japan or for everything? No, everything. Oh. I would have to There's go with n- 
somebody who won the WWF Hardcore title unlimited number of times? No, like- no just world titles in different leagues oh. or the top title in leagues. You're never going to get this because it blew my mind. Most titles. So I know who I want to say is deserving, but I, if I have to guess off the top of my head, something like that, I'd probably say, oh, but my knowledge is pushing me towards somebody with Japan experience and longevity. So I would say somebody like, I don't want to give away my answer for today's list, but let's say, uh, who would it be? I, it's not Flair for sure. Uh, yeah, I have it's no terrib- idea. It's terrible. Who is it? Jeff Jarrett. Oh. Oh. Je- if you if you count Impact, if you count oh, Impact, right. TNA, if you yeah. count Lucia Libre. Oh, right. If you count the CWA, if Jesus, you count that the guy's NWA. Been yeah. Dude, he has he has like an insane amount of world titles. Jared. He's got four for world championship wrestling. Uh-huh. He's got six NWA world titles. Wow. He's got two in AAA. Like, and like, would you go? Well, I guess that guy's the best wrestler ever. No fucking way. He wasn't even the best wrestler, like in any of the organizations when he was on top. Like, not a single one of them. There was, he's not even the best wrestler to have a guitar. You know, he's not even the probably the best wrestler in his family. his dad probably is better than him you know what i mean yeah for sure oh my god that's uh that's so that's just me shitting on the list even more okay so i i went through this list let me just review that for everybody number 10 trent beretta nine scott norton eight van vader seven carl anderson six ricochet five tamatonga Four, Rocky Romero. Three, Kenny Omega. Two, the Young Bucks. Number one, Prince Devitt. I think me and Jim probably have Vader and Omega on our list somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's Yeah, it. Vader and Omega are one, two. Yeah. From this list, right. Okay, now. Yeah. So then I was like, all right, this is a kind of bullshit list. Let me find something that's a little bit more comprehensive. So then I found a list. <laughs> You're already is, laughing. That's yeah. not that's gonna annoy, that annoys me already. <laughs> well, it's I'm not laughing because this is a bad list. I'm laughing okay. because just how fucking different this list is. Okay. <laughs> this list is the 10. What they did was they said, you know, we know as wrestling experts, it's impossible to create a top 10 list. So what they did was they said, we're going to mention honorable mention top five. And then just in like no particular order, an honorable mention, five guys in the honorable mention, and then the top five. Okay. So I'm going to go through each of the names. I'm going to just say this is 10 through six. Okay. Because that's basically what they've done. Now, is this also new Japan or is this just Japan? All Japan, new Japan, anything in Japan. So anybody who's ever been in Japan. Now, this list is not perfect, but it's far better. Okay. Number 10. Steve Dr. Death Williams. Absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely. And he might even be a little higher for me just because, and he's not about title reigns. He's a guy, he's a guy like Kurt Henning, Mm. right? That didn't need a belt in Japan because he was in that monster role and he was believable. Any match he came out for, you could not predict the finish. Right. Right. Agreed. Okay. Number nine. I think this is a little bit high. This is kind of ambitious because he didn't have much of a run. Like he was here for a while, but not that long. Terry Bam Bam Gordy. Highly skilled, but short career. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, short career, but like but like when you think of Gordy, 
besides the Freebirds, the second thing you think of is Japan. Right. But when we finish this list, I'm going to give you some guys I think that should have been on this list that would replace Gordy in my estimation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Number eight, no doubt. I think it's a little bit low. Bruiser Brody. Oh, yeah. That doesn't even need to be discussed. Right. No, no brainer. Absolute no brainer. Next on the list, Abdullah the Butcher. Yeah, I love Abdullah. Like, yeah, I think he should be. What a great fucking list, right? Yeah, like, this is a great Terry list. Bab Gordy's. Yeah, it's a great list. Okay. Now, here comes the bullshit. <laughs> Number six on this list, Johnny Ace. He was so over in all Japan, though. Like, I don't, I don't like Johnny Ace. Like, my, I, as I told you, I found my old wrestling cards, the, 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 the right. programs. And one of my highlights mm-hmm. was it was supposed to be the dynamic dudes versus the skyscrapers. And uh-huh. Shane Douglas, for whatever, no showed. So Sid just wrestled oh. Johnny Ace and he just smashed him into the ground. It was like a squash <laughs> match and it was the greatest thing. So Johnny Ace was really over big here because he's a stereotypical blonde hair, blue eyes, tall, foreign American guy, right? I like for his generation. When you look at the guys that were there at this time, he's the stereotypical American, but he's not particularly good. Like, I don't know. Like, him and his brother. He's Tonga, right? He's Tonga of his era. Right, right, right. Agreed. 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 That's a very, very good way to put it. So he's in the right booking position all the time, and that's why he's here. Okay, top five. Here we go. Number five. I think this is perfect position for this guy. Number five, Stan Hansen. Yeah, Stan Hansen's amazing, especially in Japan. Yeah. His run his run is insanely long. Like mm. he's got tons of great matches. He's worked everybody. When foreigners come in, he wrestles them a lot of times and the Japan crowd j- tends to root for Hansen. Yeah, yeah it's all yeah, great. It's amazing. Okay, number 4, Hulk Hogan. Now, we don't like Hogan that much, but if we think about his Japan stuff, his significance, knocking out Inoki, coming back and going over on Muda, doing the big dome shows, I it's hard to argue with this. Really hard to argue with this. Yeah, I'm not I'm not big on him and his and his run is minor, but he's mm-hmm. such a huge name yeah. all the time. And let's be honest, without him, New Japan's IWGP doesn't explode because Inoki doesn't get knocked out by mistake. And then that whole drama of him getting the title back and the boom of Inoki, that doesn't really, really... The storyline doesn't happen, agreed. Yeah, and so uh, his place in history... Think about this fucking guy, right? He was central in Andre's career, central in Inoki's career, central in Sting's career, central... Like, he's been central in so many fucking... Savage. Savage, oh my God. And so, like, his significance, like him or not, Right, even in The Rock's career, right? Like that's the make it yeah. match for The Rock. Like no matter what you think of the guy, his significance in history cannot be doubted. So he has to be on this list. I think he has to be there. He has two separate incredible careers. Agreed. That's a great way to Not play. even counting Japan. Yeah, right, in North America. Okay, the top 3 they went very traditional. You know all these guys. I when I went through this list, they had like the list in such a way that you had to scroll down to get to number one. It wasn't just like a list with like a, a bullet point. Like they had a big, long write-up. And so they were going through the list. I got number three, number two, and number one was very surprising. So it's unanticipated. But when I thought about it, it's kind of right. But who would you say three, two, one, 
the greatest gaijin wrestlers in Japanese wrestling history. Man, like I still I still think Omega should be there. Okay. Um man, I I don't know because this this list is so good and so encompassing of yeah. everything. So mm-hmm. I I honestly don't know. I'm very curious to hear it though. So number 3 is from your hometown. Not Ilio de Paulo. <laughs> Destroyer, obviously. Destroyer. Right? Yeah, he yeah, should be Destroyer. there. I didn't even I didn't even think of that. Yeah, that's a that's a no-brainer. Yeah, no-brainer. And then the other two guys are also from his generation. Number 2 and number 1, we reviewed their match. Their match put wrestling on the map in Japan, coming in at number 2, Luthez, and coming in at number 1, Ricky fucking Dozan, but it's because Technically, he's born in North Korea, and he so the Japanese people thought he was Japanese until after his death. And so until after he died, it was kept a secret that he was not Japanese. So I had no idea he was a foreigner until like, well, of course, I came across him after he had already died. But when I was like doing my wrestling match reviews, I didn't know he was not Japanese. And then it wasn't until like a long time later that I found out that this guy wasn't Japanese. So they consider him as a foreigner. So for me, number one is a little bit strange. I wouldn't have put Ricky Dozan, although technically he is a gaijin, but he was never ever treated or thought of as such. It's hard to argue with him as number one. What would you say? Um, A couple things. Um, You can't argue he's number one because he has the most influence. But more importantly, this is the thing that the internet killed, right? Like, Mm. this could never happen now where somebody... and, And boy, like... And for people that don't know that, that's a shocking thing when they found out. Right, exactly. And, you know, when I was scrolling down this list, so I'm looking at this, I'm going, all right, you have Terry Bam Bam Gordy, well, Steve Dr. Death Williams, Terry Bam Bam Gordy, Bruiser Brody, Abdullah the Butcher, Johnny Ace Hansen, Hogan, Destroyer Luthes. Oh, number one is Terry Funk. <laughs> and then I open it, I go, what the fuck, Ricky Doza? <laughs> so, like, it totally took me, like, aback. But... uh like if we compare this list to the previous list, of course there are some problems, right? Terry Funk absolutely should be here over Johnny Ace, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt, no fucking doubt. But like other than that, this is a fucking outstanding list, right? Yeah, it's a great list. It's a great list, and so like who says or who determines what truth is? Like who's the arbiter of truth today, right? And I can't say who is, but I can absolutely say having a criteria of just title runs to demonstrate that you are the greatest ever is a flawed way of thinking because it doesn't put into consideration the impact you had amongst your generation because none of these guys, none of the fucking guys in the first list could ever crack the second list. Maybe Omega, maybe, maybe Omega. Well, Omega maybe cracks it, but that's it, right? Like Rocky Romero, Tama Tonga, Carl Anderson, Trent Beretta, none of them are cracking the second list. They don't deserve to be anywhere near that list. And here's the thing, like you can't like you can't kayfabe this list and treat it like sports. Right. Like when you rank sports teams, you rank world championships and titles. Right. Like you can't do that with wrestling. It's the the outcome's predetermined. Like that can't that can't be your criteria. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So with that said. We're talking about two guys this week in our match who, uh, like it or not, in the long run of wrestling history, once their careers are over, they will be identified as some of the greatest foreign wrestlers in Japanese wrestling history. 
We've already done a match once before with Will Ospreay. This is the first time we're reviewing Kenny Omega. And as good as these fucking guys are, they're both good. Very, very good. You know, we've never had a chance to really sit down and talk about Kenny Omega. Jim, what do you think about him? So I saw Omega before he broke out. I saw him in Ring of Honor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I thought he was solid. I mean, he was still young. Right. But like, I didn't think like he was going to become this, but that guy Mm -hmm. just like worked at becoming better. Like he just constantly worked at it. You know, like when you see somebody for the first time and you have an initial impression, it's hard for you to shake that initial impression. Right. And so the first time I heard about Omega was with the Bill DeMott bullying scandal. And Yeah, yeah. yeah, And it, so for those of you out there who don't know, you know, Bill DeMott was, uh, what was his name? The the laughing guy. What was his name? Hugh Morris. Hugh Morris. And he had another thing on the indies. Uh, Anyways, he was this big guy in WCW. When WWF bought out WCW, he moved over to the training side because apparently he was a good trainer, but he was rough with the guys. Like he was rough. But this is fucking pro wrestling. You have to be rough. This is not baking cakes. You know what I mean? And so (laughs) I don't know. I know. We talked about the other federation with uh, Quackenbush, right? Chikara. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we also talked about Chikara getting in trouble for this, right? Like abusing the talent in their training or being a little bit rough with them. And uh, the extent of that scandal has never been opened, but Bildermott lost his job. And I don't know what he did, but I do know that Omega was one of the guys that came out and said, hey, this guy treated me roughly or was very abusive to me or whatever. You know, in our generation... That would never fly. You know what I mean? Like, it's just that signaling that I can't take what you give me in and of itself is a sign of weakness for our generation and the generations before us, right? Yeah, for sure. I didn't start with a good impression of this guy from the very get-go. I didn't particularly like Hugh Morris. I didn't think he was a nice guy or a good guy. But the guy who's complaining about the way he's being trained to be a pro that just left a bad taste in my mouth. And so it took a long time for me to get around that. And then when I saw him work in Japan, of course he's competent. Of course he's good. There's just something fucking about it. Like, I'm going to go outside of wrestling for a minute. I We never ever talk about basketball. I mean, you know, I don't really think you have much of an interest in basketball. But the first time I saw Kobe Bryant play, he'd just come out of high school, played a game for the Lakers. It was in his early rookie days. And he shot like, I don't know, like six, seven air balls in one game. Like it was terrible, really terrible. And I was like, this is the guy that everybody's talking about, this fucking kid. <laughs> and then years and years later, like everybody's going around, like making, you know, they take shots and they say, Kobe, Kobe. And like, what the fuck are you guys watching? Who are you watching? How can you even think that this guy can compare to Jordan? You know what I mean? And then right. I watched a documentary about him, like years and years after his death. So like he died, I think, three years ago now, right? Three or four yeah, years I ago. think so. And then, I, uh, yeah, maybe a year or so after that, even he said in his documentary, he said, if you watched my first few games, you would think I was terrible. I didn't have any right to say I was any good. And so like that first impression thing hit me so hard that I was never open to this idea that he was great. And that's the same way Omega strikes me. So I find it hard to ever say that he's great, even though I know he's good. It's just something about him that's not my cup of tea. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think for me, what makes Omega great is his willingness to sell. Like, yeah. like there's no, there's no doubt he's technically sound, 
But like yep. to me, what makes someone great is the willingness to take a fall, the willingness to sell moves that other guys won't sell as well. Like, like he full on will sell for anybody. Agreed. I think his in-ring work is outstanding. Outstanding. Totally outstanding. But it's just something about him. I can't put my finger on it. Okay, so we get into this match. It was held in the Tokyo Dome. This is Wrestle Kingdom 17, New Japan's version of WrestleMania. It's at the beginning of the year. And in the commentary booth, I fucking can't help but think of this guy as Hermie. I know the rock named Kevin Kelly <laughs> Hermie for a long time. And so his name slipped me for a long time. I had to go and remember what it was and research. So I went and searched it up. <laughs> but yeah, so Hermie's on the mic. And then he's got a partner that I can't say is any good. Like his partner, the partner that was in the booth with him, isn't very good. But Don Callis joins later. They have a kind of heel face back and forth between each other, which is very reminiscent of like, 80s match calling and booking for the commentary booth. It's okay. It's not bad. What'd you yeah, say? Yeah, you know, I, I don't understand like New Japan is number one in Japan and I don't think anybody would argue that. Yes. Like you would think you would have even for the US commentary like high quality people in the booth, right? Like I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Like they're very average to below average and yeah, Callus brings that manager quality, and I appreciate that, but like, I don't know why they don't have better guys. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, and I think the guys that are good are out of the game now, right? You, Joey Styles is gone. Tanae is gone. Who do you have left? Maybe Taz is okay. I haven't heard his work recently, but in Impact... Excalibur is the best to me. Right, sure. But I think he's under contract to AEW, right? Yeah, he'll, yeah he's never going anywhere. Right, he's not going anywhere. So you've got to figure out from the pool of guys in the indie scene there's a guy who does the commentary for evolve i forgot his name now it slips me he's very good he's very very good but other than him there aren't a lot of active guys that come across as being good at commentary anymore yeah that's fair does anybody strike you no i i like i like mcafee for wwe excellent I think they need to go that way with it and find like people that do podcasts or radio shows and kind of search outside of the lines a little bit for guys. Yeah, they need guys who have passion. They need guys who are vested in the outcome of the matches, who show their heart. Yes. Yeah, and I, I love that about McAfee. I agree with you. Okay. That's why we love Styles, right? Right, right. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, then the referee, one minor mistake, but I'm going to let it slip. It's Red Shoes, Outstanding. Very good count, very good pacing, not usually in the middle of the action, unless he has to be. But the thing that stuck out to me that was a shame was, Jim, do you know what the capacity of the Tokyo Dome is? What is it, like 50,000? So K1 squeezed 71,000 people in there. Whew. That's a fucking lot of people. <laughs> okay, 71,000. The announced attendance for this show is 28,000. That's a third of the capacity of the Tokyo Dome. That's crazy. Well, that that's a that's a loss, right? That's a financial loss. It could be. So renting the Tokyo Dome, to yeah, renting the Tokyo Dome for a day is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I know this because I know somebody who rented it. But yeah, two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a day. So now that overhead is there. Then you've got to bring in your stage and your pyro and all that kind of shit. Set it up. Twenty eight thousand seems like it's going to be tight. I don't know how many subscriptions they sold on their online services, and maybe that's one way to cover the money. But one thing that I did notice was the ring was fucking covered 
with advertisements. So it looks yeah, so it much so it looks like garbage is in the ring. You know what I mean? Maybe they cover it without the need for selling tickets. But in that case, then they should have run a smaller venue. I think you have a better show in like a Budokan with 16,000 screaming crazy fans with it being sold out as opposed to putting in a, a third full Tokyo Dome at 28,000. What do you think? Isn't that a machismo thing, though? Like, you have to run Wrestle Kingdom in Tokyo Dome? Yeah, I think you're right that it's an issue of pride. But there's, like, other domes in Japan that you could run it that are smaller, like Fukuoka Dome or whatever, where it's, like, capacity is maybe 40,000, 45,000, where 28,000 seems kind of full. But in a 71,000-seat stadium to get 28,000, I wish the lights had gone up once. So you'd see, like, all... It would have been fucking... <laughs> oh, they, they were never fucking doing that. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so the match starts... And I think the reason why that we only have 28,000 here, a couple of things. One is it's post-pandemic, and Japan still isn't out of the pandemic protocol. People are still wearing masks, and there's a lot of, like, that nonsense still going on here. And so that's one reason. The other reason is, on top, you have foreigners against each other. You don't have Tiger Jeet Singh against Inoki, where Inoki is a hero and fighting for the honor of Japanese people. That's not happening here. And so you really need that interplay between outsider and insider to get the draw up. Like, this is a great match. These are great guys. But the Japanese audience, how motivated are they by this? This is only the real hardcore fan who's coming. The casuals, is, which is what I like to call them, they're not going to come to watch this. And so from a booking standpoint, as good as the in-ring product is, it's a mistake. It's not a draw. What do you think? And I think this is why, and I know it's it's light years behind, but I think this is why DDT is second. Yeah. Because DDT almost is all Japanese talent. Correct. Correct. And I think that matters there. Mm. It absolutely matters. Right. So you have the occasional foreign guy coming in for a one shot and then you put him in the ring with a Japanese guy. That's what books here. That's what works here. It's it's ridiculous to think that, you know, you can put foreign guys on top against each other and then have the Japanese audience want to come and see them. It's very seldom the truth. It's true for mixed martial arts. It's true in K1. It's true in wrestling. It's, it was true in Pride. It's true now in Rising. You need a Japanese star to draw the talent, the foreign talent main event, right? Like that's the way to get this booked. So just, I think booking wise, not, not smart, not smart. And I think, I think they're trying to get into the U S market too much and are losing sight of the Japanese market, which is a, such a bizarre thing for me to say about new Japan, right, but new like Japan, right? You look, you, <laughs> you look, you look at like putting the belt on Jay white and you look at like this match, like this match is great, but from like, Keeping your Japanese fan base, these things make no sense to me. Right. These guys, they worked their ass off. They did a great job, but like, that's not the point, right? You know, Hogan is not on top because he's a good worker. The matches aren't good, right? There's something else. There's an intangible. No. And neither of these guys has it. Neither of them. Neither of these guys has that Hogan no. effect. And so that's a fucking shame too, because they're so good, right? Their work is so good. They're great. Yeah, okay. So, you know, there's just so much going on here. So before we start, I'm just going to say, if you haven't watched this match, Wrestle Kingdom 17, Omega versus Osprey, it's highly recommended. I'm not going to give it five stars, though. I'm very picky with my five stars. It's close, very close. It's better 
than Kushida and Osprey, which we reviewed very recently. But it's not quite five stars for me. I know lots of people are going off and saying seven stars and eight stars and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's very, very good. But there are a couple of things here that are missing or off that don't make it quite a five-star match for me. What do you say? I think it's match of the year for me until told otherwise because of the storytelling. It's January 16th, by the yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm not, the, and I'm not right. the only one saying it. Like, just, and like, the thing that they do great in this match, and there's no way we can go blow by blow like we normally do. Sure. The the thing that makes it great for me is when there are when there are a couple botches, and when you high fly and you have a match like this, you're bound to have them. These guys cover and transition so well that even though you know it's a botch, they sell mm-hmm. it as if like they're just changing gears. So that's true, but the problem is because they're so good, the botches look really bad. Like a couple of weeks ago, we did Kamala and George Steele. Now, if George Steele does an arm drag and it's loose and weak, you're not going to say, oh my God, look at George Steele's arm drag. It's so shit. Of course, everything is shit. It's supposed to be shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so it doesn't stand out. It doesn't stand out as a miss because it's, everything's kind of loose. It's, it's just his style. But when you do things that are perfect, like really, really, really fucking perfect, all the time, and then you miss a couple of things, those misses become glaring. And that's that's fair. The problem with this kind of match, right? Everything else, yeah, where everything is good, it's great. But when there's something off, it stands out like a sore fucking thumb. And this is where I think if we go back to episode five, we had Kobashi and Misawa. That is a perfect fucking match because what was off in that match was Misawa takes a guardrail in the face like he's not supposed to, and he breaks his jaw. The off part of that match is a damaging move that makes his condition worse. It isn't that they fucked up a spot. Not a single spot in that entire match was fucked up anywhere. There were no misses, you know what I mean? But here, because of the nature of the way these guys work, it's bound to have spots that are sloppy. That's fair. And that's what holds this match back for me. Okay, so with that said, Don Callis says, early in the match, Will Ospreay is a a once-in-a-generation athlete. Agreed? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I agree. He just, and again, he has the Omega thing where he he can sell well. I feel like Ospreay spends a lot of time, like the Oscutter and the Stormbreaker and the Hidden Blade, like I feel like, he doesn't bring, like, he's probably working on those moves for half a year before he brings them out. No, his dedication to the craft, I appreciate. Yeah, you know what? I'll say what he doesn't have in charisma and aura in terms of his presence, he makes up for his ability and his technically sound performance in the ring. And it shows that he's putting the time Yes, in. It shows. It really shows. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I agree with that comment. Then a couple of things about this match. We watched a match a while ago, Jim, where Bret Hart and Diesel were working. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And they removed the corner turnbuckle. And then for the entire match, they teased the corner post as... So Bret Hart removes the corner turnbuckle, and then he goes to whip Diesel. Diesel reverses it, and he doesn't take Bret Hart into the corner. He sends him into another direction. And then you forget about the corner being exposed. And they wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And then finally, just before the finish... 
They build to the coronal turnbuckle post, and you remember, oh yeah, it's exposed. And then from there, they go to the finishing sequence, right? So you build that tension. These guys remove the corner turnbuckle post, and they're just fucking throwing each other into it like endlessly, right from right off the get go. Uh, yeah. And I thought, yeah, I thought they lost the ability to build up tension for using the corner well. Like you know, you hold this beautiful thing in front of me, and you just give it to me. I don't have any of that like desire or pent up, you know, tension for receiving it. And so for me, I thought that was like a strategic mistake about how to use the corner turnbuckle exposure. What do you think? I think it's generational, right? Like instant gratification and the the TikTok generation. Like I'm not slamming those people, but like everything is instant now. Like you don't make people wait for anything. So I think Uh... that has, I personally think that, and again, you have to remember they're catering to an American audience now. And like, and like, and they don't, like they don't tease things like that like they used to. I see. I see. Yeah, I I like the work they did with it. Like I thought the DDT into it and all that stuff was good, but I thought they should have like went towards that at the finish, like not right away. Yeah. Because yeah. they go to it right away and like I was like, oh well, you there's no tension. So I, I didn't like that. Then there was a couple of transitions in the middle and a very fucking messy abdominal stretch. Oh, yeah, really. Bad. I don't think that oh, was. Suppo- really? I don't think that was even supposed to be the move. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think that was a, a terrible. But you know, uh, so I'm pointing out all the bad stuff only because everything else in this match was almost fucking perfect. And I have four A4 pages of notes that if I guided <laughs> everybody through this match, it would be like a waste of time. You should just go watch this match. It was that good, that good. So, but there are a couple of things I want to talk about. One is. They go to the top rope, the turnbuckle's exposed, and they deliver a standing DDT onto the top rope with the turnbuckle corner exposed. Thought it was a very, very, very nice, but messy fucking delivery move. They cut camera angles. The crowd doesn't know what they've seen. It's kind of confusing. You've never seen that before. And then they bump weird. I love the concept of what they did, but the execution was a mess. What'd you think? Yeah, I had a hard time. Like I, I again, we know I don't rewatch stuff a lot. Yeah, and I want I want to rewinding this like ten times to try to get a feel mm. of like what was going on. And I never felt like it was awesome. It was terrible. I didn't I didn't leave it with anything. Like it looked good, but the the again the cameras flipped too fast, and I really can't get a good angle on it. Like yeah, like I don't know if it was great. Yeah, so what's great about it is that it was unanticipated and even the crowd marked, right? Like, And that's a hard thing to do for a Japanese crowd. So I think it's just beyond your wildest dream like that that's going to happen. That's what's good about that. So I love that. Then the Nando's kick, I don't know if you noticed, but the third Nando's kick, Omega had his head turned to the side. So when Osprey kicks him, his eye socket goes into the steel corner exposed turnbuckle. And that's why he has a big shiner on his one side of his eye. Yeah. That was pretty rough, you know, a little bit sloppy, a little bit messy, but beautifully done. Beautifully done. And then the other point in the corner is when they're both standing on the top and it looks like Omega is about to powerbomb Osprey off the top and he slides underneath and he does a very similar move to what Shinsuke did against Muda with the throwback powerbomb, but he like the German, but he does this 
down into the top corner. I've no, I don't even know what you It's yeah. not a suplex. It's not a throw. I don't know what the hell you'd call that. Everybody was kind of like amazed by what that was. I love that. I thought it was really, really, really good. What'd you think? Yeah, I love I love that spot. And one thing I wanna I wanna rewind a little bit is to when he puts the table on Osprey and on the outside. Oh and he and he Oh the suplex oh. And, he, and he and he breaks he breaks through the table with the stomp. Yeah. And then he does yeah. the thing about Omega is he's always performing and I love that he does the shining thing when he picks up the table and he kind of sticks <laughs> his face through it. Like those little moments are are great like beyond the wrestling part and telling the story. And I think he's excellent at things like that. So I have a kind of weird take about this. Okay. So I've seen these guys do everything, like everything, everything, anything human. Yeah. Everything possible. Right. So when he did the double stomp off the apron through the table, this is what I wrote in my notes. Okay. This is the exact word. I'm going to read it. Okay. The next interesting spot is on the outside with a double stomp, off the apron, through a table. But it made me wonder why Omega didn't do a reverse 360 double stomp off the top rope. (laughs) Like, like my expectation for how they get to those spots is so over the top that when he just did a stomp off the apron, I was like, wait, why did you go higher? Why did you do a 360 flip? Or why did... And so... And I think think part part of that problem is they don't start slow, right? Like yeah, like when they when yeah. in the Kushida match, like they start slow. Mm. There's like yeah. they're right into it's it. Build. They're right into it the whole time. Agreed, agreed. But I loved that table work, and I loved more importantly than the table work. They did something with the table that I really thought was very careless or malicious. Is when Osprey picks up Omega and the tables turned over. Uh, so I've experienced with Japanese tables the, that guard underneath the table. It's pure steel it is just a steel guard and he suplexed him right yeah. on that and omega takes it on his back i was like oh my god like that's a man's bump that's the equivalent of today's chair shot to the head right I was like, yeah. holy shit that was really nice but how many people appreciate that i don't know i'm not sure i'm not sure but it was really 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 rough really tough on the body and then we go back in the inside omega's pile drivers are a work of art but the one pile driver that he did with the double underhook, and then he lifted him straight, lifted him straight up in the air, and he drove him down. It's like he's doing a self-spiked pile driver. I thought it was very nice. Yeah, it's very good. Is there a name for that? I don't know if I'm sure it has a specific name, but it escapes me right now. But it's great. It's great. It's great. But on the flip side, you know, I'm not a fan of you doing. 35 moves in one match like the same move 35 times yes. I, and i don't like i don't like the v trigger i'm sorry but for me it's not something i know mike loves that shit i fuck i know you <laughs> like it too but i fucking i don't think it's that great he pulled off the v trigger unnecessarily excessively in this match did you think it was too much or did you think it was just right no i think it's too much i think it's the super kick argument right like yeah. Like I don't like I don't need eighteen super kicks. Like I I I want that move to be like twice or three times at the most because I mm. want it to seem devastating. And the more you do it, and the more it doesn't matter, the more it just becomes the power bomb, right? Right, exactly. And so for those of you who are unaware of what we're talking about, at one time a power bomb was the absolute be all and end all to finish a match. Today it's like a headlock. 
it, right. it's nothing, right? You never end a match with a Powerball. So they're diminishing the significance of it by doing it that much. Okay, with that said, lots of reversals back and forth, lots of beautiful moves. The, you know, without getting into all the match details, because I think you should absolutely go and watch this match. Let's talk about the finish. So what happens in the finish? <laughs> you have a flying dragon suplex off the top fucking rope. I Ugh. don't even know how to... I how did they conceptualize this? I have no clue. It's beautifully executed. Then a couple of V triggers, and then out of nowhere, a great sequence that leads to a small comeback by Osprey, which finally leads to a straight jacket German suplex, and then a V trigger and a one wing angel for a clean finish going over. Kenny Omega, what do you think? Right booking decision? I think it's the right booking decision if you're building something with Okada. But again, why are we building this with a why are we not trying to generate Japanese stars? I agree. They should have, you know what I love about Heyman's booking is once a match like this finishes, there's somebody in the ring right away to distract you from what happened in the finish and to get you to think about what's coming next. This is something New Japan is not good at, really not good at. And I, I think another, another thing about the, the finish is I, and until Vince came back, I was convinced Osprey was going to go to WWE. Oh. I certainly don't think that now, mm. but like, I think he was on, I think he was going to leave. Oh, and now I, now I have no idea. Yeah, now everything's up in the air for everybody, right? So it's an interesting match. Good match. Great match. I agree with you. Thus far this year, it's the best match I've seen. The year is young, but it's not seven stars for me. It is not Kobashi Misawa. It is not. Well, it's not that. Yeah. There's no way it's Right. That. It's not that, but it's very good. Very good. Very, very good. Very, very good. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Six Man Podcast. You can tag in with a DM. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to write to us at sixmanpodcast at gmail.com. For now, it's time to tag out. 